0: Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food fact series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guests, I will take a moment to let you know that you can subscribe to my podcast on YouTube. Hit the red subscribe button or on your favorite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. I'll also mention that, although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure, or prevent injuries, disease, or medical conditions, and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Adrian Baret, physiotherapist and bike fit expert, As we will hear, Adrian has represented Australia in Pole Vault and is now a super keen cyclist. Adrian will be sharing his insights into cycling injuries and prevention and the benefits of a professional bike fit. I hope you enjoy the chat. Today I'm here with Adrian Barre. Adrian, thank you for coming on to my podcast.
1: Thanks, uh, Amanda. Great to be here.
0: So Adrian, let's start with your sporting career. Adrian, I know that you were a pole vaulter, and I understand that you were introduced to pole vault at high school, and then you trained and competed in that sport for 13 years. So before we chat a little bit about pole vault, can you please explain to our listeners what it is?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, it's a pretty exotic uh, sport, (laughs) one of the um, uh, track and field uh, events. So basically you've got a uh, long run-up, 40, 45 metres is pretty typical for a senior vaulter. Uh, You've got a fibreglass or a carbon pole in your hand. Uh, You run down the runway, uh, you plant the pole and you launch yourself into the air, hopefully clear a bar and hopefully land on something soft.
0: (laughs) Um, Where you plant the pole, is there a specific spot or a groove or something you have to get it in?
1: Yes, you'll be pleased to know that is called a box. A box, okay, good to know. It's a big know. metal box uh, in the ground. It's kind of on a slope.
0: Okay, so uh, how big is that box, just so I can picture this?
1: Uh, well, it's about 20, 25 centimetres deep at the end. Uh, the slide is about one metre uh, long, and it's quite wide to start with, and it narrows down. So where the um, the tip of the pole actually ends up is a fairly... Sort of small, uh, discrete uh, end space.
0: So you have to be pretty precise. In other words, in terms of your run up and planting the pole.
1: Well, you know when you stand in the runway, fifty meters away, it looks like it's a it's a tiny little um, space. You've got to get the tip of the pole into, Mm. but. um, uh as you get sort of more accustomed to the event very rarely would would you ever say anyone miss the box uh you know okay Juniors starting out sometimes do but uh when those sort of motor uh, patterns uh, become well developed right. uh, it's it's easy
0: okay how long is the pole that you're carrying
1: uh well again if you when you start as a junior it's uh it's going to be fairly short um they're all made in America so i only remember the uh, imperial measurements but uh, 12 13 foot poles uh, what the kids are using when they start and I think the the longest pole that I would have used at the end of my career would have been uh, 16 foot Right sixteen foot four, sixteen foot five, I think that's about five meters
0: okay, oh interesting is it heavy? I assume it's not that heavy
1: uh well they're they're heavy-ish I mean uh, you've got to be well conditioned to be able to run uh, mm. run forty five meters with this thing at full <laughs> speed but um yeah no they' they're reasonably heavy
0: yeah as you say, it is a pretty exotic sport so what what are the specific skills then that you need for pole vault?
1: Well, you've got to be able to run fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you can't sprint well, then uh, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, You have to be able to jump. So the first part of the event is basically a long jump. Um, And then once you are in the air, you're essentially a gymnast. So you've got to employ a fair bit of uh, upper body and core strength to get yourself upside down. Mm -hmm. And uh, then to be in the right position over the bar and to be aware of where the bar is so you uh, clear it and uh, don't knock it off.
0: Right. Right. Well, it sounds absolutely terrifying to me, but anyway, <laughs>
1: it's very exciting. It's a very yeah, uh, I bet it is. It's a very um, uh, sort of motivating, uh, fun activity, and uh, you know, I started it not knowing where it was going to take me, and mm. you know, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, got to travel around the world.
0: And um, Adrian, you're tall. Does it help to be tall?
1: Or... No, being tall is actually a hindrance. Okay. Uh, I'm six foot four or one ninety three. Um, in uh, modern language and yeah that's probably on the very end of the spectrum in terms of pole vaulters height. Yeah, Most of the better pole vaulters are probably five foot ten, six foot and around that sort of mark.
0: Okay, okay. I believe that you competed for Australia in your pole vaulting career. Can you tell us a bit about that and also what your career highlight was?
1: Yeah, I had uh, four Australian jerseys um, or guernseys uh, I think the first first one was uh, in 1990 I was selected as part of the World Junior Championships touring team uh, that competed in the UK and ultimately in Bulgaria uh, and that was, that was a bit of an eye opener going to Bulgaria. Uh, we competed, um, or the team competed, in a uh, city called Plovdiv. And I can't <laughs> Is it imagine... as
0: exotic as it sounds? Plovdiv. <laughs> yeah, Plovdiv. Yeah.
1: Um, look, uh, it certainly had its uh, highlights, but as a 17-year-old uh, being in this you know, quite uh, seemingly eastern block uh, city, uh, it was it was a bit of an eye-opener.
0: I bet, yeah.
1: So that was, um, that was the uh, first Australian team that I made then uh, I went away the following year to New Zealand, um, and then uh, the final. I went to the US a long time ago. Went to the <laughs> went to the US for another uh, underage trip, and then probably the highlight of my career was uh, competing at the World University Games, which was in Fukuoka, in Japan, mm-hmm. in 1995. And I jumped five meters twenty. At that event, uh, I think I came thirteenth or fourteenth. But that a lot of people wouldn't realise. But the World University Championships are actually uh, a level above the Commonwealth Games. Oh right. and, I didn't know that. Yeah, example. because it's uh, it's it's a world. Uh, you know, it, it attracts athletes from all around the world, and a lot of you know great athletes in their in their. Uh, teens and twenties are at uni, so um, yes, it's uh, certainly beyond the Commonwealth Games sort of level. Not obviously not quite as high as uh, Olympic or uh, the normal World Championships, but um, there were some pretty amazing athletes at that event.
0: Oh, that would have been amazing! And what was your personal best?
1: Yeah, so in that competition, I jumped five twenty. The personal best that I retired with uh, was five meters thirty, which is. 17 foot four in the old language oh,
0: goodness that that's that's just hard to picture i have to say well i read that recently there was a world record that was set in february this year by armand duplantis oh. mondo. mondo 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 so he jumped what 6.17 meters in poland that so what do you think about that that sounds pretty impressive <laughs>
1: Yeah, so when I was growing up and pole vaulting, my um, hero was uh, Sergei Bubka, and that's a name that was fairly well known in athletic circles uh, around the, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, and we watched this guy break world records month after month, year after year, and you know never, never thought that we'd see someone with quite his talent emerge, but all um, uh, well, again. But since then, we've seen uh, Mondo Duplantis, who's got a very interesting background because his father, Greg Duplantis, uh, was an American, uh, very, very high-level pole vaulter. And I actually competed against him once or twice. Right. Sort of, He was at the end of his career, and I was at the start of my career on, on some of these international trips. Uh, and so Mondo's got uh, an American father, Greg Duplantis. He's got a Swedish mum, can't remember this lady's name, but... Uh, He's elected to compete for Sweden, which was an interesting oh, yes. decision. Uh, but he now is—I uh, think he's twenty years old—and he's already broken. He actually has broken the world record twice in the last oh, month. That's extraordinary. So he, jumped, he jumped the one that you just talked about mm-hmm. in Poland, and a week later, he broke the world record again by uh, an extra centimetre. So wow! Um, he is kicking goals at the moment.
0: Where do you think that the limit of human potential is with pole vault?
1: Yeah, so when when Sergey was jumping, uh, we as a pole vault community always believed that he had the ability to go higher than what he actually finished with. Uh, I think his final world record was six fourteen or six fifteen, and we we kind of figured he might have been able to jump six thirty. Wow! Uh, and if you have a look at some of the slow motion replays and um, you know, still shots from Mondo's recent world records, and you look at we look at hip height, how high you get your hips over the bar. Um, if you if you stop some of that footage, uh, you'll see he's got at least 15, 20 centimetres uh, of centre of gravity height over the bar. So he could push the world record to six six metres, 30, 640.
0: That's, that's unbelievable. What is it about him, do you think? Is it is it physiology, mindset? It's probably all of those.
1: Well, my understanding is that both his parents were elite level athletes, right. so he's obviously got Jeans. some good heredity there. Um <laughs> But he's been pole vaulting. He's been pole vaulting since he could walk. There's there's plenty of videos of him, a bit like Tiger Woods hitting golf balls since Mm. he was three or four years old. Uh, Mondo was jumping. You know when he could when he could run, there was a little pole, and he'd run and jump into a sand pit and jump into a little homemade foam pit in their backyard. So he's just grown up with it, and I guess. I guess they've found the right balance of having parents that can coach, um, that are providing, uh, you know, all the technical skills that he needs and the, the right motivation but without pushing him too hard. And he's yeah. he's, he's just found that sweet, sweet spot. Yeah.
0: Well, that's very interesting because, I mean, most kids would not be exposed to pole vault for one. No. Um, and secondly, that he's, you know, got the – parents who encourage yet don't push too much. It sounds like you've got, you know, the right balance going on there. So Adrian, if we move on now to your professional career, you studied physiotherapy at university. You worked in several clinics and established your current clinic, um, Podium Physio, in 2018. And I believe you also undertook some postgraduate study, a masters of advanced clinical physiotherapy in sport. So why did you decide to extend your studies and and do the masters?
1: I've toyed with the idea of going back to do further physio study uh, several times over the course of my career. It's pretty common for physios to go back and do a masters fairly early on. I think, uh, well, judging from my experience with the cohort that were in my class, most of them were in their early twenties. Right. So it seems like they, they work for a few years and then and then go back and do the further study. Um, I guess I just came to the point where I realised a I'm probably halfway through my working career and uh, b that after twenty years, um, you know, I finished my undergraduate degree in 1994. Um, things have changed now. We've we've physios moved on from being a fairly uh, empirical. Mm. Um, uh, field of uh, of health where you know we've kind of uh, back in the day we did things because that's how we've always done things, yeah. and now we've moved on very very much to evidence based medicine. Mm-hmm. And these days uh, we need to follow what the research says and what the science says, and um, therefore you've got to know what the science says. So. The, the master's degree through uh, 2017 and, and 2018 was a, um, a real clarifying... Mm, um, refresh, ref- refresher. Re- refresher of the knowledge and yeah. you know, I, was, I was amazed at how much things have moved on.
0: I guess also um, a good thing about waiting, for want of a better word, to that point in your career is you're probably quite focused on what kind of work you want to be doing and in your case it was clearly sports focused.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've always had a background, you know, personally in in sport from track and field. And, uh, uh, you know, now I'm doing a bit of cycling. Um, My kids both play sport at reasonably high level uh, at at high school. And uh, I'm just interested in in sports. Um, Sorry, what was the question?
0: Oh, I was just talking (laughs) about you finding, you know, when you studied the master's masters you knew that you wanted to be yeah. involved in sports and, yeah, no, and that's, that's what you're drawn that's, to that's obviously true. Well,
1: no, I've actually spent about 10 years working in occupational uh, health which was never an area that I thought I was going to head towards and I kind of landed there uh, accidentally but um, man that gave me some interesting insights into how the work cover system operates or right. in, in many cases doesn't operate particularly well mm. uh, so that was that was um, an area of physio that was very interesting
0: yeah um, how did you manage to fit your postgraduate study in with your life you know with your job and other responsibilities that you have?
1: Yes well some people close to me would say that I didn't actually manage to fit it in. Uh,
0: it's pretty hard I think.
1: <laughs> the the local the local um, postgraduate physio course is uh, I hope I'm not offending anyone at the uni by saying it's it's quite directed towards, Um, international students. So the way they construct it is, and the way that it's best done is full-time over an 11-month period. And basically you just uh, head down, bottom Mm. up, uh, go, 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 working hard for that period of time. And the reality is um, during that 11-month period, I didn't do a lot of work. I was only consulting on weekends for the majority of it. Um, we are basically living on my uh, wife's uh, wage during that period of time. And I did not fit in a lot of other stuff. I wasn't doing much cycling. Right. Um, there was a period of about three months where we were 40 hours a week um, contact hours at the uni, and that was three months that were really tough.
0: Wow, that that's a massive commitment. That I, is a I big... can understand why it might be easy to do that in your <laughs> twenties.
1: Yeah, well, when you've got a business mm. and you've got a family yeah. and you've got hobbies and you're trying to keep fit and you know you're trying to keep sane, uh, yeah. that was that was a big challenge. But um, you know, I did have a lot of support, and I got to thank my, my wife and um, family for you know being. Uh, very supportive yeah. uh, over that period of time, and you know I think in some ways it did bring out uh, you know some real traits of of strong focus, and I just had to be I wouldn't have I wouldn't have gotten through the course if I couldn't push this other um, you know these other uh, what the word, distractions to the yeah. side. Yeah,
0: well it sounds like it's very much about prioritising and focus. Has, to be. Has mm. to be, yeah. And then tell us about Podium Physio. So you've set up your own practice and so what drove you to do that and and how's that process been for you
1: Uh, I think fairly simply I had a a work arrangement leading into when I was um, uh, considering going back to uni that was fairly flexible but I wanted to particularly explore uh, doing more work with cyclists and getting into bike fitting and there wasn't the space where I was working, and there wasn't the time in the diary where I was working, so I had the choice of either not using the skills in the way that I wanted to or going to find somewhere else and i could have I could have um taken a job elsewhere you know some some other sports clinic, but I guess I wanted to carve out a little niche mm. for myself and um you know I do have a a small practice that I can call my own uh, it's fairly central so uh, it's, it's fairly accessible to people from all around uh, Adelaide. Yeah, and um, I guess I've been self-employed for most of my working career, so this was this was an extension of uh, of that, just another iteration of my own yeah. business. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's um, there's there's a lot of freedom, there's a lot of responsibility, mm. but um, at the end of the day, you know, being your own boss and and setting your own schedule has a lot of advantages and um, I've, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to work with a lot of local uh, cyclists from from very much beginner level to some quite experienced and quite advanced uh, riders.
0: Yeah, well, this is a good place then to talk about cycling. So after you um, stopped uh, thrusting yourself into the air over a pole, your main sport became cycling. So what is it about cycling? What drew you to cycling?
1: I retired as a pole vaulter at the age of 25 and there were quite a few years where I actually didn't do much physical activity at all Uh, and I look back on those photos from those times and I think, hmm, that's (laughs) not quite quite the image I was hoping for Uh, but... Yeah, I didn't I didn't ever plan to become a cyclist uh, I think I started riding I, I bought an old bike secondhand bike from a from a local bike store and just started commuting to work because I knew that I'd let my fitness drop and I was just looking at simple ways to reintroduce some some activity into my life and yeah it just kind of really grew organically so mm-hmm. I went from commuting to Uh, I bought a a flat bar hybrid bike and just started to venture up into the local Adelaide Hills and really enjoyed that challenge and I think uh, well, I know that a really defining turning point for me in terms of switching on a bit of competitive edge was um, starting to watch uh, the international cycling on Eurosport in 2015 and in particular Watching the Giro d'Italia that year, which was kind of the first time I'd ever watched a, a cycling Grand Tour, and I was just um, blown away by the athleticism yeah. of these guys, and I was really inspired. Um, you know, partly because you know, some of these guys were older in their, you know, mid to late thirty, some of them even approaching forty. Um, but I just really enjoyed watching, you know, these attacks and these uh, courageous. Um, breakaways uh, these these mountain stages Um, yeah it was uh, it was awesome
0: yeah it is an amazing sport isn't it and there's there's a lot of tactics and things in there that until you actually start cycling you don't really know about well I certainly Mm, didn't and I still don't know a lot about it but it is a lot more exciting to watch than than you would imagine isn't it
1: yeah i I never would have appreciated how much uh, of a team sport it is because mm. you see you see one person at the end of the day standing on the podium, but there's seven eight, nine in the team that have that have got them into that position. And yeah, now that I've been watching cycling and being involved in cycling for you know five years, I've got a much better appreciation of how that all um, how that all uh, comes together.
0: Yeah, well, um in terms of your own cycling, do you have a highlight or a memorable moment that you can tell us about, something you've, you're proud of achieving or enjoyed? or
1: Yeah, look, I've, I've competed, uh, well, competed is probably not the right, right word. I've participated in a lot of um, rides uh, around uh, South Australia and, and interstate. So I've done three of the uh, Le Tap uh, Australia rides, which have all been in um, the Snowy Mountain regions in, in New South Wales. Uh, I've done uh, a lot of the um, uh, booper Challenge rides or that's, mm-hmm. you know, the Westpac Challenge ride this year that are, are on during the Tour Down Under. Uh, but I'd have to say that the, I've got two cycling highlights um, so far and they've both been overseas. So the first one was in 2017. My wife and I went to ride through Italy and we had three days uh, in the Dolomites and that is truly God's country, the Dolomites. How beautiful. Mm. I would be back there in a heartbeat it was just uh, extraordinary um and you know the cycling there is just amazing and uh you know it's it's a little bit different to cycling in and around adelaide um i think the uh the the other traffic is a lot more courteous towards cyclists um, i they're, guess they're
0: just very used to them. they're much more accepting mm. of it um yeah
1: but we, we cycled up some amazing mountains. Uh, we did the Stelvio Pass on my wife's 40th birthday, oh, which fantastic. was Which was just uh, completely surreal. We, we had a bottle of Prosecco waiting for her at the top. Um, we've got photos of her popping this cool <laughs> 2,700 metres in the air. Uh, I cycled up the Motorola and the Gavia Pass uh, in one day towards the end of that ride, and that was four and a half thousand oh, meters of climbing. And when I finished that ride, I had not one kilojoule of energy left in my body.
0: Amazing.
1: Um, the only thing I had energy left to do was to drink the massive hot chocolate that was waiting for me <laughs> in the refugio at the top of the Gavia. But um, I was absolutely spent. I I've, I've bought home a tiny little rock um, from the top of this Garvia climb, which just reminds me of what I achieved that day. And it yeah. sits on my, um, on my windowsill. So whenever I'm having a tough day, uh, I just look at that rock and think, no, it was never as hard. It's never as hard as what I did that yeah. day. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's great inspiration to have that. Would you yeah. ever want to do that again? Or is it one of those, I've, I've completed that now?
1: And Well, you know, with Strava, uh, <laughs> you, see, you see your times and you, you, you think about, oh, I was a bit slow around that corner or I stopped and waited and had a drink at that, that spot. And maybe if I hadn't stopped and had a drink at that spot. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I'd, I've I've cycled in Italy and I've cycled in Spain. I'd probably, you know, the next obvious thing to do would would be to go to France and tackle some of the big yeah, climbs there.
0: Yeah, Uh well, that's one of the great things about cycling as a sport. There are so many amazing places you can go. <laughs> mm.
1: Yeah, and not just through Europe. You know, we've we've been watching uh, some of the climbing in um, uh, Colombia, and uh, we've looked at some of the. Climbs in you know uh, the U.S. and uh, Colorado, I think, is a great place to oh, yeah. to cycle. Um, you know, Hawaii has got some amazing climbs. Uh, so there's you know lots of areas around the world.
0: And in terms of you mentioned before, the Tour Down Under. So we're pretty lucky here in Adelaide. Every January we have the uh, Tour Down Under, which is part of the UCI World Tour. And there's a men and a women's tour, which is great. And it does attract some of the best names in international cycling. And this year, the men's winner was Richie Port, who's an Australian. It was his second time that he's won it. And the women's was Ruth Winder from the US. Um, so, when the Tour Down Under's here, they have community rides that you can be involved in. And I think you mentioned that. So, have you um, you've been involved in the Tour Down Under? Have you?
1: Yeah. Look, way? I've done. I've done. F- I think five of those um, community rides. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't actually ride this year, but I've done five uh, in the past. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not officially involved in in the in the tour because they. Uh, I've actually inquired in the past, but um, all of the all of the teams um, arrive with their own uh, years and massage people and and such, and they tend to be fairly. Uh, self-reliant actually my my wife has been the ambassador for one of the women's teams three years in a row so it's been really lovely to get involved with um, the the Tibco uh, Silicon Valley bank team, uh, Tibco SVB so we've got to know the team owner Linda Jackson very well, and we've seen the um, the girls on the roster. They've come over for a barbecue at our place. Oh, fantastic! Um, three years in a row, and uh, you know we've well, my wife in particular has been involved in you know helping chaperone. and mm-hmm. My daughter helped to babysit the uh, oh, director of sportif's uh, <laughs> young young son uh, this year. So yeah, we've we've tried to get involved and. Um, Amongst the uh, you know the women's the women's yeah, race, that's great uh, the women's event as much as uh, the men's
0: yeah and with the women when they're here or, or the men what do you have any feedback what do they think of the course what do they think of riding in South Australia
1: look it's fairly well documented and well known that the uh, the international riders love um, coming to Adelaide because uh, otherwise they'd be in you know in the middle of winter in the northern hemisphere. Mm um one thing that's quite rare about this this ride or this race is that they stay in one base for the entire period of time so they don't have to go from hotel to hotel and that's you know anyone who's traveled understands that packing and unpacking yeah. is just a major impediment mm. impediment to enjoying yourself so these guys and girls can just sort of unpack and be in the one spot for a week or two and you know, some of the riders come out before christmas and uh, you know particularly the australian based ones are out here Prepping from you know late December onwards, but um, yeah. they just love being in the one place. They they love seeing all of the uh, the scenery, and um, it's good to see also they get involved in some of the community mm. um, issues. Like you know there was there was at least a few of the teams that went out to some of the areas that were hit by the bushfires yeah, and, did. and did. Uh, you know, community uh, events, visited schools and stuff like that, just uh, did a bit of um, media and PR work. And, you know, they didn't have to, but they chose to.
0: Yeah. It's actually a wonderful time to be around in Adelaide because you Absolutely. see these great, fabulous groups of cyclists everywhere. And mm. I remember one year I was riding when I just got back into cycling <laughs> and I'd been on a long ride with a friend and I was pretty tired and I was going up a little hill. And a team of um, cyclists came up and one guy put his hand on my back and pushed me up. (laughs) It was hilarious. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so cycling, you love it. And in your uh, clinic, Podium Physio, you do a lot of um, work with cyclists. You work in in treatment and prevention of cycling-related injuries and you do bike fit. Can you tell us what some of the most common cycling injuries are?
1: Yeah, so if you look at the research uh, and the statistics on cycling injuries, it's it's nowhere near as well documented as uh, running injuries are. But um, still, we have a we have a bit of information. And uh, low back pain seems to be very common. Uh, knee pain is probably the second most prevalent uh, injury or problem in cycling. Um, and I certainly see a lot of people, uh, bike riders, coming in with those issues. Mm-hmm. But um, I tend to see a lot of people with neck pain as well which is kind of it's kind of due to their occupational stress you know we spend a lot of time in front of computers um, and looking at screens and you know then you combine that with a very awkward position that your neck is in when you're cycling yeah you, know, you essentially you have your neck extended 45 degrees the entire time you're on a bike um, so no wonder that people have uh, neck problems there but uh, saddle discomfort very, very common. It's very, it's very tricky issue to to get around because obviously it's a fairly uh, intimate area of the human body, and yeah. um, you know there's so many factors involved there. It, uh, it might be a bike uh, positional thing. It might be requiring a different saddle. Yeah, it might be adjusting where the saddle sits. Um, you know, it might be something that has to happen off the bike. I mean pelvic floor physio is a is a emerging area of um uh, treatment which is you know fairly specific and requires a fair bit of specific training
0: yeah i I mean i've tried lots of saddles over the years and finally i've found some that work and the thing that surprised me is i thought i'll probably need a really big spongy wide one but actually what i needed was a very narrow one (laughs) Mm. it was more comfortable
1: i think that's a a common um a a common misunderstanding Mm. that uh you know the more plush the saddle the better but what you'll find is with a plush saddle you tend to have more rubbing yeah um and more surface area just means more skin contact and more potential areas for um for trouble mm. and uh yeah so generally what what works best is a is a, a, a less plush saddle but you, you need to have a good chamois a good chamois in your bike bib, uh, bib shorts
0: yeah, that's the spongy bit in the bottom of your bike shorts for anyone that doesn't know. Yep. What are some exercises that you would recommend that you think, I mean, obviously there's a lot, but um, maybe just pick one or two that you think would benefit most cyclists?
1: Wow, one or two. <laughs> oh. God, all right. Um, I, th- I think a lot of cyclists that come in, particularly with knee pain, I'm, I'm frequently surprised at just how much they actually lack Strength in their quads, Mm -hmm. hamstrings and gluteal muscles, despite the fact that they can propel themselves quite adequately on a bike. Um, If we test them in the clinic with things like a a single leg squat or a step down uh, from a a raised step or a single leg bridge, um, a lot of people really struggle with that. So those are the sort of exercises that I'm trying to get people to work on just to build up the capacity of those uh, those muscles. So things like uh, single leg squats, but mm-hmm. with particular attention on the technique so that yeah. you're doing it with good control. Um, uh, you're making sure the knee is is, is moving in line with the, the foot uh, and not showing patterns of, of weakness or, or poor motor control. Mm. Uh, single leg bridging. A lot of people get hamstring cramps early on. Oh, right. Know, that's really just an indication that your glute muscles are asleep and your hamstrings are needing to do too much. So mm-hmm. uh, those are probably some of my most commonly prescribed exercises. Uh, I give people crab walks, which are side stepping with elastic band around the oh, feet, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and that really helps people who have got patellofemoral joint problems because it strengthens the uh, the muscles around the hip that. Sort of set up the the um, the direction of movement of the thigh as it uh, sort of uh, goes up and uh, moves up and down mm-hmm. during a squat or during a pedaling action.
0: So, complementary exercises clearly are very important. Then, from the sounds of it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, most people that ride a bike, they, they just like to ride a bike and, yeah. uh, you know, that's that's fine. But um, if you want to cycle at a higher level and, and avoid, uh, minim- minimise or mitigate injury, uh, you really want to start incorporating some conditioning. Um, and a lot of cyclists just don't have the time. Yeah, it's always Don't have the inclination. But, mm. um, you know, if you can fit... A couple of short sessions into your week with some of these exercises, it only has to take 15 or 20 minutes. Um, You can do a lot of it with body weight only. Uh, I think you're better off having some resistance equipment like uh, barbells and and dumbbells or kettlebells. Um, But you can do a fair bit with with body weight only. It doesn't have to take a long time, but it's got to be done consistently.
0: Yeah, and I guess correctly in terms of um, the motions and things.
1: Good technique, yeah.
0: So... If we move on then to bike fit, can you tell us why bike fit is important in reducing the likelihood of injury?
1: Uh, well, I think uh, when most people buy a bike brand new, they'll, they'll have some kind of uh, at least frame size fitting from the bike shop, and you'll get uh, some degree of actual bike setup according to your, um, you know, your body measurements but the difference between what happens in a, in a shop is you'll generally get fit to a formula um, which is fine because I use a basic formula as a starting point as well but what that doesn't account for is do you have any pre-existing injuries, uh, do you have any ongoing sort of weak areas, uh, often if your body is out of proportion, if you've got it sounds a bit weird if you've got you know, slightly longer arms or shorter arms or a long torso mm. or a short torso. Uh, if you've got any stiffness around the hips or issues um, with the way that you walk. So if you if you walk, for example, with your feet out towing 15, 20 degrees, but you've got your pedals set up so your feet are pointing straight ahead, uh, you've got a mismatch there. So yeah. you've, got to, you've got to take all of that stuff into account. Um, And I guess as a physio coming into the bike fitting area, what I predominantly do is work with people that have got pain or injuries because either they're lacking conditioning or they've made some training errors or Mm. the the bike fit that they've got initially um, just didn't serve their needs. I guess the other category is people that have bought bikes secondhand. Um, you know, and they just think, oh, well, that's round about the right size, and we'll that's worry me, about it. That's
0: me, isn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, <laughs> for my TT bike, <laughs> you're not you're not the only one. Um, you know, you save a lot of money buying a bike yeah. secondhand, but you don't necessarily get the bike that's the correct size, and it's fairly unlikely that you're going to get the bike set up for you exactly as you need. So that's when a bike fit can be particularly useful.
0: And Adrian, how did you qualify um, to to be able to do bike fits?
1: Well, there's no there's no um, rules about who can and can't do mm. a bike fit. Uh, I mean, when I first started doing it, I didn't have a lot of particular qualifications or experience, but um, you know, I had 20 years of physiotherapy background and a, and a clinical reasoning mindset. But since then, I've done uh, a course with uh, Damien Oldmeadow, who's based in Perth, uh, who's been bike fitting for a long time. He's a, a very um, uh, well known uh, physiotherapist and bike fitter over in Perth. Uh, I've done further study with Paul Vicentini in uh, Melbourne and I actually went to uh, Germany. Where was it? <laughs> Where was it? Where was it in Germany? Munster. Munster. I went to ah, a.
0: There's a university there, isn't Yeah, there, it's Munster. a
1: university town. I went to mm. this uh, bike they didn't call it bike fitting it was like cycling optimization course uh, at the end of 2018 and that was that was pretty spectacular because they had uh, you know the creme de la creme of uh, bike fitting and a lot of technology companies you know the the stuff that's available out there if you go hunting uh, quite incredible but um, this was a four-day course over a weekend uh, late in 2018 so we came back with a lot of good information and resources Mm. after that.
0: That's why I asked the question, because I thought it's extraordinary that that even exists, you know, a four-day conference all about bike fitting. It's mm. amazing. It just shows how nuanced it can be, doesn't
1: it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And what are, just pick a couple of the common adjustments you might make to somebody's bike? What I mean, what, what are the things that people often get a bit wrong
1: well, there are so many things that you can change uh, on a bike, from you know the pedals right through to the handlebars. Um, I guess I have uh, there's 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 a certain number of things that I can change easily, like the angle of the stem, uh, the the height of the handlebars by mm-hmm. changing the spaces on the um, top of the steerer tube, uh, the saddle height and the saddle position um and the and the settings of the cleats Th- these are the things that we can change easily without yeah. needing any extra equipment um if you've got someone who's just really out of whack and you know things are clearly you know the bike's the wrong size or the the components on the bike are just not appropriate um then we've got to start directing people towards some additional purchases and uh you know we might need to get a Different stem or different type of cleats, or um, sometimes we're we're accommodating leg length discrepancies, and you need to put oh, I see. Uh, mm. shims or spaces uh, around the cleats to to lengthen the leg.
0: Mm. Uh, have you ever um, said to someone, "You just need to get a new bike, mate. <laughs> it's all wrong," or not really? Uh,
1: I do I do make that comment occasionally, um, but uh, you've got to be a little bit sensitive to someone's. <laughs> someone's um you know how they feel about the bike and the way it yeah. came to be in their life if it's uh, if it's their dream bike or yeah. um, you know sometimes also you know there might be some sensitivity in relation to the to the person that sold them the bike you know they've, they've put a lot of trust and faith in, in a yeah. bike shop or a friend yeah. who's handed a bike down and you can't just go charging in and tell them that bike's rubbish or no it's, uh, no it doesn't fit not, but, um but... yeah you know I, I approach that with sensitivity yeah
0: yeah that sounds very wise Um, And Adrian, because you're a physio and this is a wellbeing podcast, I'd like to have a little chat about the link between movement and wellbeing. So it's pretty well accepted that um, movement benefits physical health. And I'm just interested to hear your perspective on this. So, for example, this is a basic question, but why do you think it's important for people to move?
1: Because you'll die otherwise. (laughs) Um, It's a
0: pretty compelling reason.
1: Look, I think uh, if, if you just put the sort of higher level cycling aside for a moment, um, you know, we increasingly live in a sedentary society. Mm. Uh, we, the majority of us are working in front of a computer. I mean, my job's one of the few, I think, that I come across regularly where I spend equal time on my feet mm. and equal time on a chair. But uh, most of us. The majority of us these days are sitting on a chair for the, for a lot of the day, and then we drive home, and then we sit on the couch. Yeah. Um, so if you don't if you don't engineer some movement into your day, then uh, you're going to you know you're going to suffer. And I think that um, I probably wouldn't call it just movement; I'd call it physical activity. Mm. I think it is it is such an important part of physical health and. The research these days is really pointing so strongly towards um, physical activity being important for mental health. Yes, it is. Um, in my little clinic, uh, I'm amazed at just how much time I spend counselling people uh, in relation to other contributing factors mm. to their injuries, not just not the just physical. their um, the physical side. Yeah. But uh, we we need to we need to keep moving. We need to keep uh, physically um, healthy. And if we don't maintain those habits, uh, you know, we're going to succumb to the screens. And you just have to look at uh, you know how teenagers spend their time. Um, I've got a fifteen-year-old and a seventeen-year-old, and you know the countless hours they spend just lying on bed. Uh, yeah. or sitting on the couch staring at one or two or three screens simultaneously is, yeah. uh, is horrendous.
0: No, the same, same issue with mine. As much as we try and prevent it, it just, you can't, I don't know, you it's can't ubiquitous. be across everything all it's the ubiquitous. time. Yeah. yeah. In terms of movement or physical activity and cycling, what is it about cycling specifically that's um, a beneficial form of movement?
1: Well, I, I think just harking back to how I got into cycling, one of the one of the things where I made a conscious decision was I used to enjoy running. You know, that was part of my track and field background, but um, I just used to start to get sore. Like mm. I get sore Achilles tendons and sore knees, and you know, I realized that trying to keep up that running habit was was just going to be difficult for me. So that was one of the reasons why I transitioned to cycling, but. Cycling's a non-impact sport, um, it's non-weight-bearing, uh, which has its issues because if you only cycle and that's the only type of activity that you get, you, you really need to think about supplementing uh, that training with some other kind of weight-bearing activity, whether that is walking or um, weightlifting uh, is another way to do it, so you've got to get some, some loading through your bones. Uh, but coming back to cycling, it's it's a sport or it's an activity where you can enjoy it at any age. I'm, I'm yeah. riding with guys you know, that are regularly out there in their 60s, in their 70s, and I know that there are other cyclists out there in their 80s and beyond. And yep. you know, as long as you're confident being able to control the bike and um, if, you can, if you can deal with the you know, potential dangers on the road, uh, it's an activity that you can continue with throughout the whole lifespan.
0: Yeah, that that is one thing I really love about it too, I must admit. When I ride um, on Saturdays with the Lakers Triathlon Club, the variation in age of everyone out there, it's just fantastic. It's such a... A fun and interesting way to spend time. You know, you're you're spending time with people that you may not otherwise come across because they're, you know, twenty years older or twenty years younger than you. So it's it's terrific. There's a great
1: social aspect to the to the sport as well. It's fun.
0: It is, isn't it? With the coffee afterwards, and when you're going on a long ride, that does actually help because you kind of, well, I certainly look forward to the coffee at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Start fantasizing about what I can eat.
1: (laughs) That's true. Yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, cyclists enjoy a bit of indulgence afterwards and <laughs> yeah. uh, I must admit that I I can be a little bit loose with my diet uh, because I cycle so much yeah, um, and I've yeah. got a I've got a large energy expenditure so um, that affords me a large energy intake
0: yeah well that's that's a definite bonus and talking about long rides Adrian how would you feel yourself on a long ride
1: uh yeah well um I, I guess the uh, it depends what time of day it is. If it's early in the morning, um, depends how long the ride is yeah. it, as well. I guess anything up to two hours, I would probably, in the morning, I'd probably go without any sort of pre-ride fuel. Mm. Um, sometimes I'll pack gels and, and bars or a banana. Um, if you're looking at a three- to four-hour ride, then I'll definitely be packing uh, gels and, and bars and, uh, and bananas. Um but yeah, I don't. I don't think I've got any specific uh, diet uh, tips there. I mean, I've, I've no. I was a,
0: just interested in your personal take on it. Yeah, yeah, I
1: mean, I I normally have cereal for breakfast, and that's what I would do in the on a morning if I was going for a longer ride. Mm. Um, you know, occasionally we stop uh, midway, and we might enjoy a you know a little cake or a Danish <laughs> or something like that, um, just to get some extra carbs in uh look there's there's a lot of information out there probably from people that are more experienced uh than than myself but um uh yeah my 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 approach that's always been keep it keep it fairly simple
0: yeah and i think it's also quite personal like in terms of trial and error and uh, you know what you can stomach while you're out there riding because some people for example really like gels and some people don't so Mm. if you are on a long ride say three or four hours do you eat to a schedule or do you just sort of think, oh, I feel a bit hungry now, I'll have a gel or a banana? Or
1: If I was doing uh, one of these sort of, you know, I, I shouldn't call them races, but these participation rides where you where you are sort of competing against the people around you, then they've usually got um, refuelling stops mm. along the way. And I think the key there is to make sure you do stop, get some, you know, fruitcake or bananas or, or whatever that's available to you and you know whack a few in your pocket just in case it, it is too far to to the next uh, yeah. stop um so i definitely you know if, if we're pushing hard i would definitely make sure that i'm refueling you know, at least every 45 minutes to an yeah. hour if it's more of a social ride and uh, you know typically on a sunday we go out with a group and you know you go up a big hill then you wait for everyone and then you go a bit further and go up another big hill and you wait for everyone you know you've got you've got a little bit more uh, rest and recovery there and it's possibly not quite as vigorous so um i'd, I'd be a bit more relaxed about yeah. the intake
0: yeah uh, the reason i asked that is if i go on a long well, if I run in something like the Eurobilla, which means I'm out there for seven or eight hours, I have to really do it. Uh, take the gels or whatever I'm having on yeah, a well, schedule. Well, that's, quite, that's mm. quite extreme. But yeah.
1: I've actually had the unpleasant experience where I probably over-indulged uh, in um, uh, gels and I, I drank too much water on uh, one of the La Tap rides that I did. I think it was the first one in 2016 and I was borderline on on, uh, having um, gastric distress at the end of it. And, uh, yeah, I I didn't really understand what was happening to me at the time, but looking back, I think over that six- or seven-hour ride, I probably had about 15 gels and I don't know how many litres of water, but uh, I probably had too much and uh, I felt very queasy and unwell after that ride.
0: Yeah, it certainly is trial and error, isn't it, in terms of finding what works for you and how often you need to, to have the gels or whatever you're having. So it's probably time to wrap this up. I could speak to you all day because I find this so interesting. But the final question I like to ask all my guests is if you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what what would they be? They, they don't have to be cycling related. They could be related to anything.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think one of the most universal um, bits of advice I'd give for a better lifestyle is get to sleep early
0: yeah that one comes up up,
1: up often mm. um you know i've always I've always been a bit of a night owl, and uh, I just cannot do that anymore with a five o'clock alarm mm. to to get up and go out on a bike ride so I've changed my habits from you know perhaps being up till ten or eleven at night and if I'm still awake at ten o'clock these days it's going to be a rarity uh, and that's just the way it is and I think you know if you're if If you are a cyclist and you and you're regularly getting up at five o'clock, you need to think about uh, when you're going to bed and how you're winding down because you need sleep. It's one of these really uh, emerging areas of yeah. um, research where we're seeing that sleep deprivation and lack of quality sleep is affecting people and contributing to all sorts of um, illnesses and ailments, you know not just uh, not just musculoskeletal things but all, all sorts of diseases. And I guess the other, the other, I don't know if I'd call it advice, but one recommendation that I've made to a lot of people over the years is to get involved in yoga. I think yoga is a, is a fantastic activity. It's uh, fairly cheap. It's easily accessible. Mm. Uh, you can practice it at home. You don't need a lot of equipment. Um, and, you know, it's a, really, it's, a, it's a really good example of a traditional practice that really serves us well.
0: Yeah, and that clearly complements cycling well too.
1: Yeah, cyclists get very stiff because it's Mm. uh, it's a very repetitive activity in a very fixed position, and yoga takes you out of those positions Mm. and and gives you the opportunity to avoid those uh, restrictions and and joint tightnesses and muscle shortening. So uh, you know it's another area where cyclists fall down. They just they just ride the bike and then they ride the bike a bit more. But um, Mm. you know if you're not trying to correct some of those. Uh, postural um, uh, issues then you know, eventually you'll get to the point where you can't get out of that position
0: <laughs> That wouldn't be a very easy position to be stuck in would it? No. <laughs> Bent over um, and Adrian if people want to um, follow you or um, find your practice what's the best way to do uh, that? The
1: practice is currently um, based in St Peter's uh, on Payneham Road uh, I am, or well, my website is www.podiumphysio.com.au. I've got a business Facebook page. Um, if you looked up Podium Physio on Facebook, you'd find it there. Uh, I've got a blog on my um, on my website, which I try and update regularly. I've just actually added something this morning. Oh, what that. was that about? Uh <laughs> Well, um, I have a little project where I've been constructing a homemade bicycle stand, ah. and uh, I've, after two years of experimenting with it, I've actually put it uh, up on a few different places for sale. So I'm cool. I'm, I'm looking at whether I can actually commercialize this. So I've taken a, um, a hardware shop sawhorse and I've uh, made some additions to it and. It's basically a, a cheap and cheerful version cool. of a bike stand instead of paying $100, 150 $200 for something off the uh, internet.
0: Oh, that sounds fascinating. I'll, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. So thank you very much, Adrian. Welcome. And that was Adrian Beret chatting about all things cycling. I've had a bike fit with Adrian on my time trial bike and I can thoroughly recommend it. Because Adrian is a physiotherapist as well as a bike fit expert, he brings all those skills into the fit room and he was able to take, for example, my sore back into account. So it was really worth it. And as I mentioned, I will put links to his practice and everything in the show notes. So thank you for tuning in. You can subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast on YouTube hit the subscribe button and while you're there click on the bell to be alerted when new episodes are available. You can also subscribe on your favourite podcast app, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify or Google Podcasts and you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Direct links to all social media can be found on the subscribe page of my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. If you would like to contact me, you can send me a message via the contacts page on my website and please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and I'll do my best to deliver that to you. Finally, please take a minute to leave a rating on iTunes. It improves visibility and will inspire me to keep researching for my five minute food facts series and to invite excellent guests on to chat with. So thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.